Cool. You're listening to Only Human on 4ZZZ and Z Digital. And today on Only Human, we've been talking to Dr. Winifred Lewis from the University of Queensland, and we've covered so many subjects so far. We've talked about violent extremism, environmental collective action, and intimate partner violence. But now we're moving on to the issues of identity, in particular white identity and how that's become a bit of a political tool lately, hasn't it? But yeah. I guess what people think that is. Well, that's right. I mean... To be honest, I was surprised by the whole kerfuffle over critical race theory because it seems really commonsensical um, to me, basic ideas that racism exists in a system. But the white identity piece, we had started studying it long before this controversy came up. And people might not think that they even know what white identity is. Um, it's so much taken for granted as a background that if we don't specify, then someone is white. That's, of course, in our um, racist modern white societies, not in general. And so um, what this line of work is about is really going beyond that and really understanding how people are constructing their white identities and what its consequences are, what its predictors are. Mm -hmm. So there are really very different ways to construct the white identity. Um, firstly, um, you can understand it in line with white supremacy and superiority of white people over other uh, groups and a historical privilege and maybe we invented everything awesome if we're white people and we deserve somehow to control the world. But there's other ways of just understanding being white as maybe um, a source of perpetration, something that you almost feel uncomfortable with or weird about, that you would become self-conscious. And then there's just a straightforward understanding of different white identities that you might have, like Irish versus British or mm -hmm. British versus American. And so people have all different white identities. Um, and in Australia, uh, as in the US, that's the case. The research that we did, and this is a student um, who led the project whose name is Zara Murnajafi, um, was looking at American white people and how their white identity was linked to perceptions of discrimination. Because a general pattern is we find most of the identities that we have lie dormant psychologically most of the time. Like I might have an identity as a white person, but it's not very conscious. I don't really think about it day to day. Whereas other people have a white identity that they're really very conscious of and mm -hmm. it drives them to engage in extraordinary behaviors, even violence. And so how can we understand that? Well, around um, the psychology of intergroup relations, we know that if you perceive discrimination against your group, that makes the identity more salient. Mm -hmm. So one point we wanted to address is, do perceptions of discrimination um, increase as white identity increases? And we found that is the case, and other people have found that around the world. And then we wanted to understand what are the consequences of that white identity being more active for someone. And of course, it is associated in um, contemporary politics with a conservative, almost racist discourse mm -hmm. about uh, the legitimate oppression of other groups or mm -hmm. at least failure to give support to requests for change. Um, so unsurprisingly, we found indeed that if people have greater white identity, they were less likely to be in solidarity with other groups and more likely to support action on behalf of a white majority things like English-only schooling or, you know, um, actions like that. And we're also interested in the well-being consequences. And so, in general, there's an enormous amount of powerful work lately to show that the more identities that you have and the stronger you hold to them, the better your self-esteem and the well-being that you have. 
being disconnected from your identities is actually negative. Mm -hmm. um, so we wanted to know, is that the case for these advantage groups where there's uh, historical baggage? And, if, and the data that we had showed that it was. So um, the more people identified as white people, the higher their uh, self-esteem in a couple of studies. Mm -hmm. And so that's very interesting to look at that. And um, we would see it as just one step in what will hopefully be an ongoing journey because... Mm -hmm. In general, um, identities are powerful and they're important in our decisions. And it's important that the advantage groups, um, you know, white identities, Christian identities and so on, be open to research so that people can explore them. And in a way that hopefully isn't as politicized, mm. I'm not sure why people would try and draw a line in the sand to say that some things shouldn't be studied or looked at, but I think that's probably rarely a good approach to social justice and to progress. Yeah. Um <laughs> So in the US last year, uh, there were a lot of uprisings and riots in relation to the Black Lives Matter movement, yeah. which originated, I think, with Ferguson, but was re mm. uh, kind of kicked off again. Um, in Australia, um, Pauline Hanson passed a motion in the Senate um, that it was okay to be white, which yeah. is actually a white supremacist yes. kind of catchphrase. Yeah. So how do we draw comparisons? I think a lot of people tend to think that you, the US is this like hot mess of racist yeah. violence, but uh, I think Australia isn't exempt from that. Not at all. And I think it's often really pernicious to try and rank um, countries in terms of how terrible their racism problem is. Let's just say that Australia does have a racism problem. It has historical injustice against the indigenous peoples. There's disproportionate incarceration of indigenous youth and adults. There's um, disproportionate health issues. You, you would have, listeners would probably know the Close the Gap campaign, which just simply speaks to the reality that there is a profound difference in life expectancy, more than uh, 15 years last I heard, between an Indigenous Australian and an Australian from um, white or other backgrounds. And so I think we need to address that as a country. And part of it is about the expectation that white people had that it was okay to come in and steal the land. And part of it is about the um, expectation that people have that we shouldn't have to listen to Indigenous Australians. And you folks would be aware of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, where Indigenous groups made a simple request to have their voice heard in the Parliament and for that to be built into the Constitution. Then, And I think that the resistance to that is extraordinary and comes from that kind of um, uh, narrative that's being constructed of white victimhood. Mm -hmm. And we do know around the world that the constructed narratives of victimhood can be really popular and can be associated with terrible human rights violations. So I think that that's the kind of arc that we see in many groups, not just white people, but uh, I feel like there's a threat to my group. I feel like I'm a victim somehow. That makes my identity stronger and it enables me to legitimize acts that aren't actually morally okay when seen through a more inclusive lens or an egalitarian lens. Mm. Are things changing? I think, uh, for example, um, the discussions around uh, Australia Day or what might be better called Invasion Day, yeah. um, that perhaps uh, when maybe the ABC surveyed, uh, ch ch there are changes in yeah. um, thoughts about how we should celebrate our national identity and yeah. should we have that truth-telling element? Um, should we change 
the date and stuff like that. I do think that there are important changes that are occurring. Our data doesn't speak to that, but there is other data here in Australia that's shown huge generational differences with young people much more open to inclusive narratives and and to, to respect and to recognizing the historical injustice without the same defensiveness of some people in the older generations. But it's also important to acknowledge that along with the overall trend among young people, there's a degree of polarization Mm. where we're also seeing extraordinary resurgence of white racist narratives, Mm. supremacy and neo-Nazis and so on. Mm. So we shouldn't uh, assume that we're on an inevitable trajectory towards progress. But I do think that at um, a basic level, there's a lot of people in Australia that have everyday contact with people from other groups that are in schools with people from other groups and that just wouldn't even dream of believing that their white identity is a license to discriminate or a legitimized reason why they should somehow control other people's lives. So I I see that as heartening and I see it as a result of years of advocacy and education like we talked about in relation to the earlier topic. We could talk about this for a whole hour, but But we've got 10 minutes. (laughs) So the way I thought that we could do this is one of the things that interests me in that research you were saying is why people would choose their whiteness as a source of identity rather than something that they did themselves. Because whiteness isn't something you choose, is it? You're just born that way. But you could be, you could, you know, become educated or have a great job or whatever, help people, and that could be your identity. So I guess, how do people change from having one identity to to another? Yeah, uh, yeah. Positive or negative, I guess. That's such a fascinating question. Um, The research that I'm talking to you about here is by Guy Chonu, a PhD student who looked at people converting religions or, or abandoning the religion they were raised in, as well as people converting par- parties or abandoning the party that they had grown up with to become an independent or an apolitical person. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't directly address changing from having a political focus of your life to a religious focus or a racial focus. But the big picture is um, push-pull factors in identity, such as threats and values, structure the way that you prioritize the different identities in your life and also how people see you. So one of the factors I believe that is making um, the white identity come back to salience, if you like, is because there's more conversations about it and people are more likely to be told that they're white or have someone say say to them, look, you are white. And that is an experience that actually people are sometimes ill-prepared for. Uncomfortable. And they're real uncomfortable with it. And they're kind of like, wow, mom never told me I was white. What am I supposed to do? And so I think um, as a society, we can move towards a less immature way of reacting. But just coming back to this research of geese, it was really fun and interesting. So um, I don't know if you guys know that overall in the West the historical religion of Christianity is actually declining. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking as a Christian myself, but in the broader community, the people who go to church regularly, the numbers are getting less and less. People who identify as Christian, the numbers are getting less and less. And many people um, raised in the Christian faith are becoming atheists and walking away from the church. Even if they uh, identify as spiritual or religious, they often are leaving that faith behind, which is profound because course it's 2,000 years old and has um, an arc often that connects families as well as individuals and societies. And the other factor is more and more people are less and less committed to the political parties. So it used to be that you would have a rusted on political loyalty. You'd be raised in, say, a Labour family or an LNP family or a a Democrat or Republican. 
And then you vote that way for your whole life, the whole town, you know. But now there's a degree of volatility. Um, there's a degree of movement, which can sometimes be 10 to 25 percent of an electorate. And that is really changing our politics. And or in the case of WA, almost 100 percent. Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, look how they were wiped out completely after Christian Porter. The uh, Liberals were pretty, pretty much wiped out wow. in WA. Yeah. yeah. So that kind of change is really interesting for us as psychologists because... You know, why is it that people aren't having that um, loyalty or adherence to the way that they were brought up? In? And so what Guy's research said um, was we wanted to explore the individual and group level factors. At the individual level, we found the same factors that have been identified by other researchers, which include, you know, being alienated from your family, being alienated from um, the community moving physically, for for example, from the rural to the um, city, having crises of faith around the contradiction, perceived contradiction, between religion and science, around th um, things like evolution, and also um, feeling a sense of, of rejecting the values around perceived uh, links of racism or um, homophobia mm -hmm. and that was a factor in people leaving the christian faith i'm mm -hmm. sorry to say as well as in leaving conservative parties then there was party level factors of course those so-called individual factors connect with party level or, or faith level factors so so some people felt like the leadership of a religious group or a political group was corrupt and bigoted. And obviously that, that means that you would have less confidence in them and less loyalty to them. Mm. There's also a sense of people being persecuted and rejected for expressing values, and that was true at the political and the religious level. And then there was disaffection um, with the leadership around issues like childhood sexual abuse, which has just been so devastating to people of faith in the churches where they pedophile priests were allowed to predate uh, on the young people. Mm. So those were some of the factors that we identified at that group level. And then in terms of timing, it um, was very interesting. So there we found support for this, um, this narrative that people talk about of losing your faith at college. So when you go to university, um, you'd be exposed to um, ideas of modern science, for example, and then you feel troubled by the contradiction. But there were many other issues that um, that people related to, including family issues that happened in middle ad adulthood. So when you raise your kids, often people would go back to their childhood values, or in some cases they might leave their political party around issues of health care or abortion or children's rights. So it's really interesting to see the kinds of issues like parenting powerfully shape the way that people were reacting to and linking to their political and religious groups. And then we also looked at the consequences for well-being. So mm -hmm. Obviously, you would think that if you leave one religion and join another or leave a party and join another, you'd kind of be value neutral. But mm. we found that actually there's, there's actually a strong negative driver of distrust and disappointment, as well as a strong positive driver of connection and attachment to the new group. And so it adds nuance to this story about how more identities are good for you. We found in some people, in some people's cases, the toxicity and distrust that they had for their old group had actually damaged them and was associated with well-being, like loss. Mm -hmm. But then we found also that the new group that they were exposed to and getting out of those abusive situations or into a more valued um, case, the, the admiration and trust that they had in the leaders of the groups that they had joined or the religion they had joined, that was lifting them. Mm -hmm. So we found there was um, not an overall trajectory necessarily, but the the um, people overall that stayed in their religion had higher well-being, 
but among the people that left, um, some went down and some went up, if that isn't uh, oh, okay. too confusing. Because you would think that it would be about, uh, that well-being would improve if you got out of a situation that conflicted with your values, wouldn't you? Yeah, and uh, that did happen for many people. But mm. I think um, overlaid on top of that was the fact that they had gone through that disappointing experience. Yeah. And having that um, sense of real mistrust and anger over the betrayal around something like the pedophile priest or also homophobia in the marriage equality you know mm. um, kind of context that was mentioned by a lot of young people mm. that were moving away from their church okay so we're getting very close to the end of the show did you have to, a question you want to ask Nathan? In how they measured well-being you know? yeah we had um short psychological scales which include items like i feel full of energy you know, I just asked you on a scale from one to seven, what would you say? But the, the, we looked at self-esteem, we looked at something called vitality, and we looked at um, uh, people's sense of the meaning of life or purpose of life. So in general and well-being, there's a, a pleasure aspect. I feel like everything's good. I feel fine. And then there's a meaning aspect. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm really living with purpose and with a sense of meaning. Right. And so we're interested in both of those. Mm-hmm. So if people want to read some more about that uh, identity change, uh, changing religious research, that's also available, is it, on Social Change Lab? It is, and especially in the blog. Um, So we are keen to spam you if you're interested. (laughs) (laughs) So before uh, our hour is up, we want to talk about your forthcoming book, The Psychology of of Effective Activism. Sounds exciting. Yeah, it's so fun. It is exciting. (laughs) Um, So it's coming out from Cambridge University Press, and the authorship is... Um, Robin Gulliver, Cecilia Wibisono, Kelly Fielding, and myself. And the, what we did was try to understand why is it so hard as an activist or as a community member to answer the question, what works? And we realized because there are so many different outcomes associated with activism. And so what we did was we mapped the outcomes into um, seven main categories that we think are important for introducing social transformation. So there's awareness raising and building sympathy for your movement, generating intentions for people to take action, getting them to actually act, which is different from intending to act, right? But then we also found people need to persist over time. They Mm, need to sustain. Yeah, sustain. And they need to grow coalitions beyond the original base. Mm -hmm. And they need to avoid counter-mobilization. So we called that seven um, potential outcomes, and we called it Abiaska, just for fun, to have a jargon. No, I'm just kidding. And then we looked at them in relation to four audiences. Mm-hmm. So what we did was look at if people are taking action, what's the impact on supporters, opponents, bystanders, and third parties like the media and policymakers. Mm-hmm. And so we discussed that in each chapter, you know, a chapter on supporters, a chapter on opponents. And in there, we also looked at radicalization and de-radicalization. So coming back to your earlier question when the mic was off, if people are interested in learning about how to intervene in trajectories of violent extremism, soon you'll be able to buy our book. (laughs) (laughs) So this is really, uh, in thinking of your own career trajectory and all the research you've done in the time that I've known you, this is kind of where it was all going, isn't it? Yeah, it's this really book. satisfying. Um, this book is hopefully the, the beginning because it's a bit jargony, it's for scholars, and then we're hoping we can write something that's um, for community members. But we are interested to know what activists think about it. So I've been trying to do some video, explainer videos, and um, have some engagement with activist groups around mm-hmm. the key ideas and with policymakers. 
someone um, told me they've been playing the videos to a politician and I just really look forward to a productive engagement about how advocacy can be made more fruitful for both sides. And so those videos are also available on socialchangelab.net, aren't they? Yes, <laughs> and I've also started a YouTube channel, Psychology of Change, although I'm not sure if you can actually Google it yet. It's so fresh. You are listening to the but Only Human podcast. Videos, uh, Only Human is a weekly program on social, social justice, disability so rights, and a lot easier for us research and mental wellness. <laughs> you can go to socialchangelab.net to watch those and also to chase up any of that research that we talked about Love community media? You can support 4ZZZ by subscribing or making a donation at 4ZZZFM.org.au.